well, we talked about verses 13 to 16 in Matthew chapter 5, in which Jesus said to ordinary people like you and me, who sometimes are stuck in the mud, that it's not just that the kingdom of God is near, it's that I intend to send you out into the world. And I will use ordinary folks like you and me, Jesus says, ordinary people like us to be the salt of the earth and to be the light of the world, to be a city on the hill for all who we would encounter. And today he continues with his kingdom of God message, kingdom of the heavens message. Those two terms are synonymous in the teachings of Jesus. And again, they are the most frequent teachings of Jesus in the gospels. We're taking a sampling of them throughout the series, Citizens of Another Kingdom, to understand more of what Jesus means in his most frequent teaching on the kingdom of God. And while we continue with that today in Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, Jesus said. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands that I am giving to you, these commands of scripture that have been given to you in the past that through the law of Moses, whoever practices and teaches these will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Then after giving these words, Jesus, for the rest of chapter 5, describes for the crowds on the hillside outside of the Sea of Galilee, he describes for them what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. He just said, unless you practice these, unless you live these, unless you hold on to these, you will not receive the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, do these things, practice these things. And he goes on to describe that what that would look like, what greatness in the kingdom of heaven would look like for us today in the remainder of chapter five. And here's what he's gonna say. Religious kingdoms, he's contrasting the religious kingdoms of the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of that day. He says, religious kingdoms tend to be about externals. And you'll know this. Religious kingdoms tend to be about externals, but Jesus' kingdom tends to be about the heart. Okay, religious kingdoms tend to be about external conformity to standards. Jesus' kingdom is about the heart. Now, it's not saying that externals don't matter. Externals do matter, but the heart matters more. Say that with me. Externals matter, the heart matters. Yeah, that's right. The heart matters more in the kingdom of Jesus. The Pharisees, of course, were these religious leaders in a deeply religious culture, and they held incredible sway across the culture. In first century Judaism, the Pharisees had enormous influence. And they used their influence this way. They 
watched people's external behaviors, the way they looked, the way they acted, and they liked to correct people. That's how they used the other influence. So they like to notice the way ordinary people like me might miss the mark on the outside as opposed to focusing on the inside. They would memorize all 613 laws of Moses. Yes, 613 of them. Okay? In the first five books of the Bible called the Torah, you have the first five books of the Bible are the the, the books of Moses, there's 613 laws there, and they would memorize all of those, and they would keep an eye on how ordinary people like us either did those or maybe didn't do them, and their focus was on the outside of the cup, as opposed to focusing on the clean inside of the cup. Where Jesus said to focus, clean out the inside of the cup, the heart, and then the outside will take care of itself. I wonder, just by show of hands, have you followed this story in the news over the past few weeks about the Muslim morality police in Iran? Okay, can I see your hands if you have? Okay, the Muslim morality police in Iran arrested and killed a woman named Masa Amini. And her crime was this. She wasn't wearing her hijab, her head covering, over her head in just the proper way. She was arrested and then killed by the Muslim morality police in Iran. Okay, that's the kind of thing the Pharisees well were looking at. Maybe they wouldn't kill people who weren't conforming to their external standards, including dress and many, many other things, but they would certainly punish them, oftentimes by shame. Now, Jesus regularly called the Pharisees hypocrites, but because he saw their hearts. He saw that they did externally, but they did not internally. Or they told people what to do, but they didn't actually do it themselves. So he called them hypocritical actors. And so he's telling the crowds here in this section of the Sermon on the Mount that I want to point you to the heart of God's law. You understand that when Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law, he's not taking away from the Old Testament law. He's saying that I have fulfilled much of the Old Testament law. Yes, the moral law still applies, but the civil and the ceremonial, the theocratic law that governed Israel at that time, that no longer applies in me. And he says, I want to point you to the heart the deeper things that God's law was originally pointing people to, but the Pharisees of the day simply didn't understand. Now you gotta understand in chapter five as well, we go through this, that Jesus teaches on evil and moral goodness, and when he does teach on evil and, and moral goodness, he plunges directly into the heart of humanity. Okay, like he does not teach from an ivory tower, that is not Jesus. What he does is he gets up close and personal with the kinds of things that humans struggle with at a heart level. And so again, for the rest of the chapter, he's going to be dealing with things like this. Raging anger, contempt, hatred, lust, divorce, Verbal manipulation, slapping and suing and cursing and begging. Like this is the stuff of soap operas. 
and real life too, right? It's the stuff of real life as well. So in verses 21 through 25, Jesus redefines murder. He says, you have heard it said, do not commit murder, but I say to you, don't even have anger in your heart toward another. Don't you ever say you fool to another because that statement of contempt to another is towards someone who is made in the image and likeness of God. Okay, he redefines murder. Then he goes on and he redefines adultery. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, go even deeper into the heart and don't even allow lust to come into your mind or into your heart. He redefines and he ups the ante on divorce and marriage. He redefines oaths. You have heard it said, keep your oaths, keep your promises. But I say to you, Jesus says, let's get to the heart of the matter. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be such a person of simple integrity that your yes is like an oak tree. Okay, in all of these things, what Jesus is doing is he's going to the heart of the matter as opposed to just focusing on the externals. Yes, he wants us to mind the externals, but far more, he wants us to be good people at a deep heart level, and he says in the kingdom of God, that's possible for us right now. The kingdom of God is a totally different perspective than your typical religious kingdoms. Let me move this stuff out of the way here for just a moment, and just look at this portrait for a moment with me, and well, what do you see? An upside-down painting, yeah, you see an upside-down painting. But if you were to look through this globe really, really carefully, look through that globe on the table real carefully, and can you see what's in that painting? Okay, it's, it's right side up. So, uh, I mean, uh, upside down, you can't really see well, what it is, but if you were to turn it right side up, if you look through that globe, through kingdom of God goggles, if you will, what you would see is the beginnings of a beautiful Nebraska sunset and a gorgeous farm and a harvest time and you start to see right side up. And this, my friends, is what Jesus is doing throughout the Sermon on the Mount as he's teaching about the kingdom of God. He's saying, we've been looking at things upside down. Excuse me. And he's inviting us to begin looking at things in a right-side-up manner that doesn't just focus on external religiosity, but it focuses on the heart. Next episode of this very long sermon, again, chapters 5 through 7 is all a single sermon. Okay, Jesus has a point in all of it. He's showing us what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. And he gives this basic sermon, at least on a couple different occasions. There's one in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6 as well. Yeah, you could look at at another time. But in this next section, he goes into giving us a vision of what love would look like in the kingdom of God. And it's an elevated vision from external love, which is love those who love you and care for your own, to an internal and different kind of love, which is love even those that are against you. Listen to the words of Jesus now. Matthew chapter five, verses 38 to 48. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. 
But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your, enemy, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, go to the heart of the matter and love even your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that they may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on both the evil and the good, and he sends rain to both the righteous and the, and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? He's saying, God sends sun and rain to those who are righteous and unrighteous. Are you only going to love those who love you? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than any others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Would anyone like to preach this morning? Loving those who mistreat you. Praying for those who persecute you. Could anything be more difficult? Like, could there be a more difficult passage in terms of practical application for the follower of Christ today? Most of us don't really have enemies, so to speak, we don't have enemies the way, say, Israel and Palestine are enemies of each other today. We don't really have that kind of experience. We don't have, like, the experience that South Korea lives in, looking at North Korea with a crazy dictator who's looking down at them with nuclear weapons. Like, really, anymore, I mean, even our football team, we don't have the Buffaloes or the Sooners to hate anymore. Those were good enemies. The Hawkeyes, come on. Those were good enemies. Like, most of us don't have enemies, really, the way Jesus is referring to here. But I wonder, can you think of people who tick you off? Come on, somebody. Can you think of someone who has wounded you deeply? You better believe it. All of us have that experience of being wounded very deeply by someone who we really cared about. Maybe a friend, maybe a family member. We all have the experience of being really annoyed, ticked off, perhaps, with a neighbor or with a coworker, or someone who just kind of does you wrong and grates on you on a consistent basis. We have someone that we could think of. Please don't think about them for too long right now. Okay, then you won't hear anything else that I say. As we unpack this passage today, I, I just want to ask this favor. Can we allow the words of Jesus to just speak to our souls? Would you please, as I unpack this passage for a few moments today, would you please allow Jesus to speak? Not my words, but his words. 
and how we would apply this very difficult passage, which feels unlivable for so many of us, but if we would listen to the heart of Jesus and observe his life as it relates to this text, I think we'll see some really, really important things, though, this morning. By way of background, you know this already, but Jesus was a Jewish man, and he is speaking to ordinary Jews on the hillside there in Galilee. And as he's speaking to ordinary Jews in Galilee, he's speaking about regular experiences that they would have. And he's teaching them what to do when they experience oppression from an enemy. And so he says, well, when a Roman soldier comes to you and he makes you carry his armor a mile, go with him a second mile. Because according to law, a Roman soldier could demand that a Jewish person would carry his, his armor or carry his baggage anywhere he wanted to go, no matter what that Jewish person was doing for one mile. By law, they could do that. Likewise, a Roman superior could publicly slap an inferior in the social order of the Roman Empire, and a Jew would have been an inferior. And a Roman superior could slap an inferior on their cheek. Okay, right hand, left cheek. Could slap them, and there was no consequence, and there was no repercussion for the Jew. And so understandably, in that context, Jesus, the Jews of the day saw their Roman oppressors as enemies. Now, the practical question, the practical question for, for, for first century Jews, and I think the practical question for, for us as well is, how would we respond when somebody insults us? How would we respond to someone who is mean or is disagreeable or who is unloving or even would treat us like an enemy? The standard response in the Jewish world of the day came from the law of Moses, Leviticus 24, verse 19 and 20, Paul puts it this way. If anyone injures his neighbor, whatever he has done must be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has injured the other, so he is to be injured. And friends, this was actually an elevation over the law of the day in the other nations of the world where Israel was starting to, to be formed. Typically, in those uh, areas, though the standard was, if you kill my cow, I'm killing two of your cows. Okay, revenge and then some. What was the standard? So God elevates that for his people at this point and says, no, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And as far as I can see, that seems to be the highest standard that most of us hold ourselves to, whether it be way back in 1400 BC or 2022 AD, this is the law of the day. To love those who love you and to repay those who might injure you. But again, what God is doing here throughout the Sermon on the Mount is deepening the requirements of the law from an external obedience, which is a good start, to an internal level of heart obedience, which every one of us, by the way, every one of us want for our children, right? Like, we don't just want external obedience from our kids, right? Anybody? We want heart-level obedience from our children, we want them to want to do the right thing, regardless of what consequences well, we might give to them. And so also it is with our Father in heaven toward us. 
Jesus simply saying the kingdom of God people like us who are living so much under the rule and the reign of God respond to a personal affront, a personal attack in ways that are different than the rest of the world. Like we don't need to respond tit for tat. We can give more than we need to give. We're so filled with the love of God for us that we have resources at our disposal that enable us to love people different than the world loves people. We have resources at our disposable that enables us to love people even who are not very lovable. And this, I believe, is what Jesus is referring to well, when he says things like, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Any perfect people in this room? I'm sure many hands are up in the venue right now. Okay, there's no perfect people in this room. There's no perfect people on this stage. So what is he talking about there? I think what he's referring to is, though we are sinners, we are in a sense perfect, that after Jesus well went to the cross, he forgave all of our sins past and present and future, and he imparts his perfection into us, and that's what God sees well when he looks at us now. And the more we live in that reality of God's unconditional love for us, the more we're able to love people even who are unlovable. The more we're able to do these statements that Jesus is referring to in the Sermon on the Mount. Now it's vital that we understand Jesus didn't just teach this message to this crowd. He lived this message for this crowd. you got to understand that Jesus had very real enemies. Like it was Jewish and Roman authorities that conspired together to torture him to within an inch of his life and then strip him naked and string him up on a cross. And what did Jesus say from that cross? Anybody? Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Could there be a greater act of love in the world? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Likewise, on earth, Jesus did kind of ruffle some feathers at times. He wasn't always Mr. Meek and Mild. I am not saying that. He had harsh words at times, but even those that he had harsh words for, he loved them too. Like it's significant for us to understand the only ones that Jesus really had harsh words for were religious insiders. Okay, it was Pharisees and scribes and teachers of the law that he reserved really harsh words for because he would expect something different and better and more loving fall from them because they had all the Old Testament scriptures. They had the love of God, and yet they frequently wouldn't lift a hand to help people. And so Jesus had harsh words for the Pharisees, but even them, those that he sometimes probably thought of as enemies. Even there, Jesus goes up to a hillside just before he's about to be crucified by them. And he looks over from the Mount of Olives, looking at the temple in Jerusalem, and he says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent by God, how long I have desired, how much I have longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not have me. You are not willing. I longed for you, Pharisees. I longed for you, teachers of the law. I reached out to you even as you stoned those who were sent by God, and yet you wouldn't have me. You see, Jesus did not merely teach love toward the unlovable. 
Jesus actually loved the unlovable. This isn't a message he merely taught. This is the message that he lived. I want to give you a few principles for how we likewise would live this message in a subversive kind of way of loving those who are unlovable, loving even those who would insult us or hurt us or gossip or slander against us. I want to give you three principles. The first one is this. I want to encourage you to practice jujitsu. Don't laugh at me. I'm an expert. Okay, don't be scared. I'm not an expert in jujitsu. But jujitsu is this Japanese martial art that means this the art of yielding. Jujitsu means the art of yielding. And again, I'm not an expert on it, but based on what I've studied, my, my understanding is jujitsu is kind of unique amongst martial arts in that it doesn't seek to match force for force, blow for blow. What it seeks to do instead is use the force of one's opponent against them. So someone else has weapons, someone is using force against you, and you use that force in a subversive kind of way to spin them around using their energy against them without using a weapon of your own. Okay, so it... It takes the energy expended, shows the foolishness of the attacker, and in an expert kind of way, tires the attacker out. Practice jujitsu. You gotta understand what Jesus is not doing in these 11 verses, which by the way, are not only found in this passage. They're also found in the Gospel of Luke. They're found in the book of Acts. They're found in Romans. They're found in 1 Peter. This idea is found throughout the New Testament of loving one's enemies. And what he does here is he teaches a way to love the unlovable, not by becoming passive victims of abuse, that's not what he's doing, but by doing like the subversive work that takes the force of another and uses it against them. He's given us a brilliant way to respond to an attack from a position of kingdom of God security. That's what jujitsu does. We are secure under the sovereignty of God, and so we can abandon the natural operating principle of an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. Let me show you the way Jesus teaches his disciples to practice jujitsu. Look at verses 39 through 41. You'll see them up on the screen, one after another. He says this, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek as well. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Three different ways, three concrete examples he gives. And what he's doing is he's teaching us to use the foolish hatred of an oppressor against them. Oh, so like you're going to force me to pick up your armor and carry it for one mile, and by Roman law, I must do so. Can I take it a second mile for you? Like, he reverses it. He's saying, you can say to that Roman soldier, you might force me to carry it one mile, and in that sense, I'm your slave. But let me show you that I am free to do what I want for the second mile. And I can choose to serve you in love no matter what you do to me. 
And perhaps by doing that, he's saying to his Jewish audience, you might prick the conscience of your Roman oppressor such that they would say, wow, what is different about these people? Why am I oppressing them? It's an act, a subversive act of kingdom love. So also, again, a Roman superior could take the open hand and slap an inferior in public on the left side of the face. Now, if that happens to me, I have one of a couple options naturally. In my own self, I either cower and get scared, and maybe I get hit again, or I can naturally hit back, force for force. And what Jesus is telling his audience is you actually have a third option. Because you are so secure in the kingdom of God, you could stand up to that soldier and you could turn to him your other cheek. Such that maybe in that moment, his conscience is awakened and he says, who is this Jewish man who is this follower of Christ who is so incredibly courageous and loving that he stands in the face of oppression and he doesn't back down? This is jujitsu. Now, apprentices of Jesus, again, we never let people abuse us. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not giving a new set of laws for us to allow people to abuse us. He's simply saying that if we're attacked, we can respond in a different way. So, like, we should play this out in our own context. Say a friend, for example, has started to become an enemy. And someone who was your friend begins gossiping about you. And you learn that that friend is not only gossiping, but also slandering you. What if you called that friend up and said, hey, it's been a while since we've visited. Can I take you out to lunch? I'd love to just know what's going on with your family. I'd love to catch up with you. Okay, this is a, a subversive kind of love, isn't it? It's, it's choosing not to react in the most natural way, which would be gossip and slander back about that friend. Or maybe you have a son who's being bullied on the playground. And how do you teach your son? I teach my son to stand up and tell that bully, stop it. You're going to stop it. And then... We start praying for that boy. We start praying for that bully. Because the simple truth is, hurt people hurt people, right? Hurt people hurt people. And so, those who love God, we genuinely will and we act toward the love of all people. And so we might begin praying for those that would seek to hurt us. It's another move that we have as followers of Christ. I would say that life groups should actually practice this. Like, when I've been insulted, my natural is not to be all kind and loving. <laughs> okay, so i got to practice it. I talked about a time recently when I was insulted. I had to practice that ahead of time to get there. I would encourage you in your life groups, practice insulting each other. This sounds kind of crazy, but really, like... <laughs> Practice insulting each other and then practice what are you going to say when you're insulted? None of this is passivity. It's an active form of nonviolence. Perhaps you know that Rosa Parks fought, for example, who, by the way, was an amazing, wonderful Christian woman, 
like, did, do you remember what she would do when she was called the filthiest of names on those Montgomery buses when she was just trying to find a seat? She would say, no, sir. Yes, sir. Good day, sir. Thank you for the ride, sir. And what did it do? It awakened the heart of a nation. It awakened consciences. And people started to feel their shame. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 12 as well. When your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in so doing, you'll heap burning coals on their head. All that means is you will awaken their conscience to their shame. Friends, the gospel of Jesus actually works. So we begin by practicing jujitsu. And the second thing what we do is loving enemies includes proper boundaries. We understand this principle that if we're gonna choose to love an enemy and pray for those who would persecute us, that does include proper boundaries. Jesus is teaching us here how we would respond to private offenses. He's not teaching us in this passage that I'm teaching on though this morning how we would respond if one of our loved ones is vulnerable. That's another passage, okay? Nor is he teaching us that we have to be pacifists. There's other passages that speak to that. Indeed, God gives the government a proper role in providing protection for the vulnerable in our society. So all of those different passages, they round out our theology. I'm not giving a new set of laws here. Jesus isn't trying to do that. He's simply saying that we love our enemies even if it includes firm boundaries with them. It's possible that with someone who's really hurt you, that you have to remove yourself from an abusive relationship. Jesus is not precluding that. Sometimes love means praying for that person from afar. But again, the point in all of this is that there's something better than hating our enemies. That we can actually have a posture toward all people, which is a posture of love for them a posture of wanting the best for every person that we meet. And then finally, most importantly, and I'll, I'll just kind of wrap up with this, loving enemies starts with the realization that we were enemies. Friends, loving enemies starts with this realization that we're naturally enemies. And as I invite the, van, the band to come up on stage here, I just want you to kind of jam on this with, with me for a moment. Think about this basic gospel message that far more than applying this message in the way we think about other people, the priority, the starting point is this, we need to receive this message. Remember the gospel with me that you're created in love, that you're made in the image and the likeness of God and God loves you deeply. And yet the gospel message teaches that we have this problem called sin and that our sin separates us from God and that naturally all of us have kind of gone our own way, have we not? And we've gone our way so much that the Bible says we are naturally rebels of God. That in my flesh, I know this to be true, outside of Jesus Christ, I want to do my own thing. And I've operated 
so much across so many years as a rebel of God that deep in my flesh are things like pride and lust and judgmentalism and greed. And by themselves, what they do is they separate me from God. In fact, the Bible says this, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were separate from God, while we were enemies of God, Jesus Christ died for us. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to God through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. It wasn't while we were friends. It wasn't while we were all put together. It's while we would insult the ways of God. It's while we pretty much looked out for me, myself, and I that Jesus came for us, that God sent his son for us. And our sinfulness by itself, it creates this incredible wreckage where we cannot relate to God on our own, that we're enemies of God, and yet he sends his son for us to bring us back to him. And friends, we need to live in that message. We need to drink in the gospel message on a day in and day out basis. We need to pray for the gospel message to be true in our lives that would forgive us yesterday and today and forevermore that we realize it's true, I am a friend of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And as we dwell on that message, we begin to pray the truth of those words. We begin to pray for people like Jesus prayed for people. We begin to love people the way Jesus loved people. We begin to look at people the way Jesus looked at people. And all of a sudden we just find that less and less is there any room in the human heart for hatred for any people. We find this security in the kingdom of God that no matter how messed up things are in this world, I know that I'm loved by God and that changes everything for me, particularly with respect to how I look at anyone else. And so we say, Lord Jesus, come to me. Come to me again and again and show me how you love me even when I was an enemy of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you do this for us? Sometimes we get so saturated in our church lives, in our Christian lives, that we forget there was a time that we were separated from the love of God. That because of our own sinfulness and because of your holiness, you could not look at us with love that you saw us and what you saw was our sinfulness. And yet you wouldn't go without us. And so you gave your son. When we were enemies of God, when we didn't want the things of God, you gave your son even for us. And so Father, we receive that from you yet again today. And we ask Father in Jesus' name that you would give us a newfound courage, a newfound capacity, a newfound desire to love even those who seem so unlovable to us today. Our heart's desire is to be the light of the world. And we know a huge piece of that is by the way we love others. We'll be known for our love. So Father, would you please work in us from our hearts, not just from external appearances, but change us from a heart level 
that we would be transformed in the likeness of Christ. We'll give you all glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.